you guys want to make your way back to your seats, we're going to continue our worship this morning through the study of the Word. That is the quickest Red Tree Church has ever gotten quiet after a greeting time in the history of this entire church. I don't know what just happened. Was that a... I don't know if that was meant to be like a late Christmas present to your pastor or if the Spirit's just already moving today. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> no, no, we're not growing up, surely. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to be here today with you guys. We are jumping back into our study of Colossians, and I think it's going to be really sweet for us. So if you want uh, to prep yourself, you can go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles on the end of each row. We believe really strongly in the importance of being able to look and see and read God's Word. So if you don't own a Bible, you're here maybe visiting today, I would encourage you to snag one of those or talk to one of our elders and we will get you a nicer one. But we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. But before we jump into our text, it's been a hot minute since we were in this book. Um, we took the whole month of December off to do a series in Advent, so it's been like since Thanksgiving, since we talked about Colossians. And I don't know about you guys, but with the holidays, it just it feels like Thanksgiving was in a different decade or something. It's crazy. Oh man, that was bad. <laughs> I've been saving that joke, guys, for so long. For so long. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so anyway... <laughs> Everyone in the room's like, sermon over. I'm not going to hear anything. Any, any respect I had for your spiritual authority is gone now. <laughs> um, now I did want to give us a quick just kind of recap of the book heading into our text before we read it. So um, if you don't remember, the book of Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. So it's in the middle of this section of the New Testament called the Epistles, a series of letters uh, that pastors and religious leaders wrote to different parts of the church, most of them written by the Apostle Paul to churches he helped found. Colossians is a letter he wrote to a church he did not help found. In fact, he had, he had never even been to this church when he wrote this letter. What had happened was Epaphras, the man who did help found this church, was a disciple of Paul. He'd gone to the city of Colossae, which, uh, if you guys remember, had been a relatively important city in, in the area of kind of like Asia Minor. If you're looking at the Bible map in the back of your Bible, right, in the Mediterranean Sea, Colossae is kind of like right in the middle, straight up. It had been a pretty important city, but it was waning in importance. And this disciple of Paul, Epaphras, went and helped found this church, and it had been doing really well. But at some point, this church began to creep into heresy. And we don't fully know what uh, happened, but the Colossian church began to fall into a syncretistic heresy where they began taking beliefs and practices from other religions and other philosophies and other teaches, teachers and trying to meld them together with Christianity. Epaphras contended with this church, trying to bring them to repentance and bring them back to orthodoxy, but he was unsuccessful. And so he leaves. And he goes and he finds the Apostle Paul in prison and asks him to intercede on this church's behalf. 
And so the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon are the fruit of that trip. Paul writes these two short letters to this, to this church as a whole and to an individual member of this church to try and draw them back to orthodoxy. A church he's never met, he's never been to, no one he knows, but he hears through his disciple, Epaphras, that this once strong and faithful church is fading away into lies and death and heresy, and so he beseeches them to return to the truth of the gospel. So this is the whole of the letter. It's a relatively short letter. It's Paul's introduction of himself and his arguments for the sufficiency of the gospel over and against heresy. And so he opens this letter in chapter 1 by, first off, introducing himself, and second off, going out of his way to make sure the church at Colossae knows that he includes them as believers, as brothers and sisters that he recognizes them as a Christian church. He sees the same spirit, the same gospel, the same repentance that is moving forward in power throughout the whole of the world, moving in power at the church at Colossae. And this is really important because this church is in heresy, right? They have some repenting to do. But Paul is saying, when it comes right down to it, you need to return to Christ. You need to repent. But we are brothers and sisters. I see the Spirit in you. I see the same gospel at work in your church as I see in every church I've ever been to. You are Christians. Come back to your first love. And so, as he makes this bold statement, he reminds the church that their inclusion in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with themselves, but that it's God himself who, who willed, who worked in mercy and love and grace to include us in his kingdom. He's the one who did the qualifying, not us. And then he launches into the most fleshed out Christology in the whole of the New Testament, where he spells out in no uncertain terms exactly how sufficient and authoritative and capable Jesus Christ is of accomplishing this work of including his children in his kingdom through his blood on the cross. If you guys remember this, this is that first section of Colossians, like starting in verse 15, he just goes to town on the power and authority and deity of Christ. After he moves out of this Christology, listen, you are believers. I see the Spirit in you, the same Spirit I see in all the churches I see in you, and it's because we're included in the kingdom, not by anything we've done, but by God's grace and work in us. He qualified us. He's able to because look at Jesus. He is God. He is sufficient. He is powerful. He is love. He is able. This truth, he goes on in the end of chapter one, changed my entire life. And Paul then begins to spell out how the truth of this amazing gospel, that Christ's sufficiency worked out in love on our behalf to qualify us for inclusion in the kingdom, has changed his entire life. And he says, look at me, look at my life, look at my story. I would do anything for this gospel. I would do anything to proclaim this truth anywhere and everywhere. And then going into chapter two, he says, even with you guys, 
I've never been there. I don't know you guys, but man, I am contending for you. I am for you because this gospel is so powerful and so true and so amazing. I will do anything that as many people as possible can find life and freedom in this Jesus whom I preach. And so then, right before our text starts, Paul finally, finally addresses the elephant in the room. After spending all this time talking about the power of the gospel, the sufficiency of Jesus, the amazingness of the universal church, he finally, in chapter 2, says, so don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't settle for less than this amazing gospel. And then our text picks up in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of the rule and all authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This Beloved is the word of the Lord. Let's take a minute and pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for your goodness to us, your faithfulness to us. Lord, as we take a few minutes to discuss this text, to reflect on your gospel, to think of these words our brother spoke to a church not so different than ours a long time ago. God, we ask that you would be our discipler today. Holy Spirit, illuminate the text for us. Speak your truth to us today. Convict us of our sin. Remind us of what we have forgotten. Teach us new truths of your gospel. And Jesus, let us leave here today having spent our time with you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things expectantly in your name this morning. Amen. Man, there's a lot there, huh? 
you want to talk about some stinking gospel red meat, right? Like, how are we going to weigh through that? I think when you grab a text like that in a context like ours, that's just full of all these little words and phrases and images that are just so just like, man, that's tweetable, right? Like, that's so good. It's really easy to miss the overarching message for all just the just the way it just pour, the the way the cadence of the text just pours it on and pours it on. So what I'd like to do this morning is take a few minutes for us to pick apart a couple of these specific words and phrases that Paul uses so that hopefully we can step back and see the larger truth he's saying in this chunk of text. And I think that'll lead us to something really good that God has for us today and we'll end out our time with a story that Jesus told in Matthew 18, and then by taking communion together. Sound good? Cool. So, undeniably, up to this point in the book, Paul's message has been very simple. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This has been the cry of Colossians over and over and over through the first chapter. The Christology that Paul works out for us in the first part of the book essentially says, listen, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, this man who lived and taught and died and rose again in another country, in another place, at another time, he is the hinge point of all of reality. Everything turns on Jesus. That is a massive statement. We've talked about that a couple times as we've gone through this book. The grandness of the claims of Colossians are ludicrous. It is a big gospel that Paul is declaring, right? And he gets into this section, into our text, and he gives us in verses 6 and 7 the thrust of this entire book. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 are the thesis statement of all of Colossians. And by the way, I would encourage you guys, if you're like in this, going through this book with us, if there is any section of Colossians that I would say you should commit this to memory, it's Colossians 2, 6 and 7. This is the absolute most base argument that Paul makes in this entire letter. His introduction up to this point has been leading up to this opening sentence, and the rest of the book going forward is him explaining and expounding on this sentence. So let me reread this for us. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Do you see what Paul is saying here? You, Colossian church, have received Christ. He was given to you as a gift. You did nothing to qualify yourself. He qualified you. You received this gospel, this amazing Savior, this Lord, this Messiah, this kingdom. You received it. So walk in it. Walk in it. Be rooted in it. Be built up in Him. Be established in faith. 
He says, this, this is it for you. You've received him as a gift. He is sufficient. He did this. Don't hunt for a new spiritual experience or a new truth to receive. You have everything you need in Jesus. So walk in him. He is your root. He is what builds you up. He is what establishes you. You were already taught this. Jesus, and Jesus alone. And then he ends it. I love this. So be grateful. You've got it. He's your root. He builds you up. He, it's him. You've got everything you need. So just walk forward in that and be thankful for the grace you have received. This is the message of the whole book of Colossians. Jesus is what you need. Period. Jesus answers the cries and longings of the human heart. And he is sufficient to meet the needs of the human heart. The things you long for, the things you cry out for, the things you will do anything to have and receive, the actual thing you were built for is him. And he is sufficient. Sufficient to meet the needs of the human heart. When you find yourself adding to Jesus, adding new experiences and new traditions and new truths and new wisdom and new teaching, remember, he's sufficient. You don't need anything else. You don't need anything else. So look what he does in our text. He starts laying out his specific argument. He starts getting into this synchronism that, 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 that the church is struggling with, and he names several things that are actually capturing and hurting this church. I love this because he doesn't start here, right? You have to make your way into chapter two to actually get like Paul's actual argument against the heresy. Up until that point, he's basically speaking the argument from the positive over and over and over, proclaiming the sufficiency of Jesus, because Paul ultimately knows that he can refute the specifics of each individual heresy, but there's more to come. There are endless combinations of soul-crushing lies that this world can deceive and come up with and feed to us. And so Paul goes back to the truth. Jesus is all you need. Anything else, anything else is dangerous. He essentially tells them, wrap your lives around Jesus. Receive him. Receive his love and the service he gave to you on the cross and walk in that. Except no substitutes. But, he does get into this specific argument of this church, right? Look, and so look really quick. Look at the actual things he calls out. Uh, this is starting in verse um, 8. Philosophy. Straight up just deceit and lies. Human traditions, elemental spirits. Literally anything that is a not according to Christ. 
So I want to walk through a couple of these words and phrases for us. Uh, These are specific to the Colossian church, but I think it'll speak some good truth to us here today. Now, the the way Paul is using the word philosophy is in the ancient sense of the word, not in the way we use it today that was like a gen ed class you took in your undergrad, right? He's he's using the word philosophy, and, and in this context, philosophy essentially means any teaching or system of thought that explains the meaning of human existence. Any teaching or system of thought that gives meaning and purpose to human existence would be a philosophy in this day and age. So if you think about that for a moment, the way Paul's using the word in this more ancient and general sense, what systems of thought or structures are we handed that claim to explain the meaning of human existence? I think by Paul's use of the word, we can include the scientific method, the American dream, political ideology, self-help books, diets, and CrossFit memberships, and Enneagram results. Any of these things, on some level, speak to meaning and purpose behind the human experience, and they are how Paul is using the word philosophy. And so he says, some philosophies take people captive. Think about that image for a moment. Have you ever seen a person taken captive by a philosophy? It ceased for them to be a tool by which they can engage the world to the glory of God, and it has become a taskmaster that defines that person's experience of reality. Think about that. Notice that Paul differentiates, by the way, between philosophies and outright lies. It's because a philosophy is not in and of itself evil. It's not in and of itself wrong, but man, it's a terrible taskmaster. It's a terrible thing to be captive to. Another way to say this is that uh, no matter how right, say, your politics may be, If those politics decrease your intimacy with Jesus and participating in his family and mission, they're more dangerous for you than outright lies. A philosophy can be true and cease to be a beneficial tool because it becomes a master to you, becomes something that it wasn't designed to be. The same can be said for human traditions. Tradition is a powerful thing. It's a great tool and a terrible master. Tradition can connect us to older, deeper truths of human experience, right? But it can also be something that totally pulls us out of the present. Some of us probably experienced this last month over Christmas. Has anyone seen the movie Christmas Vacation? Anyone? Is that a normal? Is that wrong for your pastor to admit that he's into that movie? If you've seen that movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Chevy Chase's character is so obsessed with having a traditional, old-fashioned family Christmas of living into these traditions that he totally misses the experience of the season with his family, right? And on Christmas Eve, uh, he's in his neighbor's yard cutting down a tree with a chainsaw rather than in his living room with his wife and his kids, right? This is the power of traditions that have taken people captive. They're no longer connecting them to powerful ancient spiritual truths. They are defining reality for the person. 
I'll give you an example of this from my own life. How many of you guys, you, you have to have been in church maybe for a hot minute to know this, but how many of you guys know the, the, like the 90s worship song, Open the Eyes of My Heart? Anyone know that one? Mm. Mm. That song was playing when I met Jesus. At a summer camp in Bolivar, Missouri, in a theater in a college university, little middle school me crying during the invitation and a mentor, actually full-blooded Native American man on an 80s keyboard is playing Open the Eyes of My Heart, and I go down the aisle and I meet Jesus. It's part of my testimony. It's powerful. That song is sacred to me. Sacred to me. I can hear like 1996 Michael W. Smith version of that song blasting, and I'm instantly like teary-eyed in the throne room of Jesus, right? That song is really important to me. I'm not going to ask Chris to subject you guys to that. <laughs> because that song is terrible. <laughs> if you go and listen to it, it's so, it's so cheesy and it's so locked into like 1994 that it just, it just needs to stay there. And that's okay. And that's okay, right? Because here's the thing. That song is not sacred. It's not. It's just a song that some people wrote to praise Jesus at a time, and it did some powerful work. But when it comes down to it, it's a song. And there's been lots of songs written, and there'll be lots more songs written. And for me to put my foot in the ground and say, no, that song is sacred. People meet Jesus when that song is sung in the right space in the theater. That would be foolish. It'd be foolish. That would be letting something some, some kind of tradition, some part of my own story, speak over and above reality. And it would pull me out of experiencing what God is doing here and now. Because here's the thing. Traditions, and I'm sorry, but it's true. Traditions are not sacred. Jesus is. Pure and simple. Traditions are beautiful. You should have them. You should engage them. Open the eyes of my heart is part of my personal worship of the Lord. It's on like my morning quiet time playlist, Michael W. Smith, electric keyboard, blasting it in my earbuds. It happens. It's good. It's powerful for me, <laughs> right? Traditions are good when they're in their right context, when they're being used as tools to help point you to the grandness and the history and the agelessness of the power of the person and work of Jesus. When they point you and bring you and others back to him, they're great. When they are an end in and of themselves, they're destructive. They're dangerous. And go to his last one. He talks about the elemental spirits of this world, right? Did you catch this? It's a weird, weird phrase. According to the elemental spirits of the world. You know, I, this is a really loaded phrase, and we're not going to spend a huge amount of time talking about it. But, but for our purposes today, he, hear this. Paul is talking about this kind of subjective, present, emotional, spiritual experience. Right? There's not a lot of people in our context that are like in danger of going and worshiping wind spirits and trying to like mix that with their, their Christianity, right? That's not necessarily something we see in our, in our context, but we do see a lot of taking really subjective emotional and spiritual experiences 
and trying to mash them into the mold of biblical Christianity. We do see a lot of people taking what, if we're honest, is just human intuition and stamping God's name on it as though it is his will, right? So listen, and hear me on this. God speaks to us through subjective emotional and spiritual experiences. He does. It's part of our faith journey. You have a sense, you have a feeling, you hear a song, it strikes you just right. You go and you get an inkling and you speak to someone. That stuff happens. It's good. You should experience it. It's beautiful. It should not be the defining drive of your spiritual life. If you want to hear from God, your hope and desire should not be to go and like find some weird sign and symbol, right? Like lay out your fleece, right? And be like, God, if you want me to do this, then, then make this cloud shaped like an L float over my head at 11.15 a.m. this morning. Like we shouldn't necessarily be seeking after those things. If you want to hear from God, he's made himself pretty readily available through his body physically here on earth and through his word revealed and preserved to us. You should enjoy subjective emotional and spiritual experiences. They're fun and they're a cool part of the way our God chooses to interact with us and guide us, but they should not be your master. They should not drive your faith. All of these things, totally, except for the lies, right? That one's one's pretty bad. All these things, right? Like totally okay tools. Terrible masters. Terrible masters that take human hearts captive. You should not be taken captive, right? By these, by these things that God made for goodness. Beloved of Jesus, do not be deceived. Do not let things that God made as tools for you rule over you. Anything that seeks to assert itself as truth over and above the sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus is tricking you. Jesus is enough. And good tools and good traditions and good philosophies and good experiences will point you back to that core gospel truth that Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. He's enough. And then Paul goes on to explain exactly why. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There is not a source of truth or freedom or experience that exists in this world that can compare to what you have been handed in Jesus the God of the universe, the ruler of creation, the sustainer of reality, the lover of your soul, who gave himself up for you, who dwells with you, who adopted you into his family, who fills you with himself. There is nothing to be found in this world through teaching or philosophy or experience or truth or anything that compares to that. To that. 
And if the traditions you've been handed and the new and catchy philosophies and teachings you hear and the subjective emotional and spiritual experiences you have, if those feel more concrete and more real and more worthy of your time and attention and devotion than the person and work of Jesus, beloved, I would warn you to step back and reflect on your heart. Because those things, those things are empty. Not bad, but so woefully incomparable to the excellency of Jesus Christ's love for you. It is as if as if you would take a portion of your, your five Michelin star restaurant meal and set it aside and say, I'm sorry, this is good, but I need to make sure to save room for my Cheetos and Hot Pocket. That's weird. But you get what I'm saying. Woefully incomparable. And if those two things look like equal dining experiences to you, You need to step back and let someone speak some truth to you. Right? Guys, there's no way to cook a Hot Pocket to make it satisfying. It's either frozen in the middle or it is molten lava hot. It's not as good, I promise you. But that's what we do. That's what we do. We hear these truths. We come to church. We sing these songs. We hear these sermons, and we go, yes, Jesus, you're so excellent. You're so sufficient. You're so worthy of praise and adoration. And we leave, and we go about our lives, and we go to work, and we hear from people, and we read blogs and listen to podcasts and hit the hardships of life. And everything else in our experience somehow seems either just as, if not more, satisfying in the person and work of Jesus. Beloved, do not be taken captive by empty philosophies, by deceitful lies, by elemental spirits, by human traditions. You were made for so much better than that. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his sufficiency It's all about his work, his capability to give your heart what it longs for. Think about that. Think about the cries of the human heart. Think about the cries of your heart. What do you long for? Peace, purpose, freedom, joy, life. Companionship, pleasure, truth, wisdom. These are only found in Christ. These are only truly answered in Christ. His his creation of you, his sustaining of you, his forgiveness of your heart, his continuing to carry you and move you on toward eternity, his love and sacrifice for you, his intimacy and companionship with you, his plan and purpose for you. These are the only things that will truly, truly answer the longings of the human heart. And look how Paul continues on. He goes through, and I'm going I'm to walk through these fast. 
But he uses these couple images, right? Circumcision, baptism, right? Resurrection. He uses these images that essentially speak into exactly the lies he was talking about. Traditions? You think human traditions will find life for you? You think your salvation, your security comes in your baptism, Christian? Your circumcision, Jewish fellow? No. Christ is the circumcision. Christ is the baptism. Christ is your resurrection. Faith in him, not the truth of a philosophy. So he walks through those images to show how woefully insufficient, insufficient the methods of this world are to speak to the desires of the heart. And look where he lands. He says, this is starting in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus' finished work on the cross destroyed, killed the power and authority of the curse over you. Jesus' finished work on the cross killed your sin that you earned, your judgment that you bought for yourself. Jesus' finished work on the cross killed that curse. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 18. It's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. He, he compares God to this business owner who uh, goes to settle his accounts one day, and he finds this employee who owes him a ludicrous amount of money, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like this dude, uh, this menial worker could work the rest of his life four or five times over and not be able to pay back this debt unless he won the lottery or something. And so the business owner, God, brings this man before him and says, what the heck have you done? Look at this debt. What happened? And the guy falls on his knees and begs for mercy and says, uh, just be patient with me. I'll pay it back. I promise I will. He won't. He can't. Literally impossible. Could work the rest of his life. He won't pay it back. And so the business owner has mercy. He pities the man. And he takes his ledger and he cancels out the debt. He says, go in peace. Go in peace. And he sends the man away. It's this beautiful image, beautiful image of Christ's work for us on the cross. It's beautiful because of how ludicrous it is. See, if you're a little more business-minded than maybe I am, that story sits a little funnier with you. <laughs> because this guy has his ledger. He has a business. He has ins and outs. He has income and he has law expenses. He has all these things. And this guy owes him an immense amount of money. And for the business owner to say, scratched, debt forgiven, get out of here, is not just some beautiful act of mercy where those numbers just magically disappear. The business still exists. The money has to come 
from somewhere. You see, when the business owner forgives the debt, he's not acting as though the business and the income and the debt simply don't exist. No, he's zeroing the account himself. He's pulling that money from his own profits, his own account, to zero the balance on behalf of the pathetic worker. It's important to know that. The business owner has to pay the debt for the debt to be zeroed. You can't magically make money disappear. In the same way, Jesus doesn't just dismiss our sins. He doesn't just dismiss the reality of curse and evil as though it is insignificant. No, Jesus pays the penalty of our sin. I've said this before, beloved, but hear this. When you stand before the throne of God in the final judgment and you are laid bare and the depths of your evil are shown before a holy and righteous God, Jesus will not call out for mercy on your behalf. He will call out for justice because your sins have been paid for. It would be unjust for God to punish you a second time for sins that have already been accounted for. This is the work Christ did for you. Not dismissing the weight of sin, not blanking out your account, but paying your debt, absorbing your wrath, that he might stand before God with you and say, God of the universe, justice for this creature. Give them eternity. Give them perfection. Give them heaven. It is the only just thing to do. Whew. That is the God you serve. That is the sufficiency of Jesus. That is the way that Jesus speaks into the needs and desires of your heart. He bought a way for you. So, as we kind of wrap up our time, what are we to do with this? What does that mean? I mean, it's obvious, right? Like, we, like the Colossians, must look at the grandness of the finished work of Jesus and say, yes and amen, truly, that is sufficient. There is nothing to be added to that work. I can do nothing to make that work more complete, to make that work more freeing, more life-giving, more true. There is nothing to be done. It is perfect and complete in and of itself. Anything else is a travesty. We must agree with the Colossians in that truth, but what do you do from there? What do you do with this? How do you walk out of this space resting in the sufficiency of Jesus? Well, this is Paul's challenge to Colossae and to us. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. Walk in Him. Give yourself to that. I know you're like, come on, pastor, that's just like a churchy phrase. What does that mean? 
This is what Jesus calls us to. Abide in him. Rest in that finished work. Stop trying to justify yourself before God. Stop. This is, this is as though the debt has been paid and you have no more payments, but you continue to mail in your checks and you call the debt consolidation agency to try and get a better rate. And they're going, but your debt is paid. And you go, but I've already written the check. Who do I mail it to? Stop. Stop striving. Stop trying to earn justification and standing and place and worthiness and love before your God. He is already crazy about you. Receive that. Stop working for it. Stop assuming that you must earn worthiness in his place. Your God cried out for justice for you. The only just thing is for the God of the universe to lovingly include you in his family and in his intimacy and in his confidence for all eternity. Experience that. Receive that. Rest in that. And be grateful. Respond to him with thanksgiving that the work is complete, that he is sufficient, that you can simply receive the love of Jesus. And he's going to spend the rest of the book picking apart what it looks like to walk in Christ. But I'll give you this image and we'll stop. Rather than taking your income and continuing to make payments to a debt that's already been paid, what if we were to then focus that income and our joy and gratitude of being forgiven and blessing others? What if we were then to invest that income into the benefit and gifting of others out of the overflow of gratitude of our forgiveness? A band's going to come up I'm going to give some space for us to pray. That story in Matthew 18 is a funny story because it's really beautiful. It ends terribly. The guy has no way of receiving the love from the master. He does exactly what I said. He has his debt forgiven, but he still allows his heart to be dominated and defined by pennies and due dates. And he completely misses the love of his master. Beloved, to, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in him is to allow yourself to be humbly served by the God of the universe who you have no right to be served by. That's a hard thing for some of the proud hearts in this room. Let's take a few minutes and pray and allow ourselves to be honest before our God and to confess how, if we're honest, how awkward and painful it is to slow down and stop striving and stop trying to prove and stop trying to be enough and to simply allow Jesus to love and serve us. I know that is painful for some of you in this room. 
who, like Peter, we cry out and say, not me, don't wash my feet, never. Oh, beloved, you must, you must, you must be quiet and you must be humble and you must allow your Jesus to love and serve you. You must receive what he has for you. Let's take a few minutes. Be honest with him about your heart. And then I'll end our time with some prayer. We have some prayer counselors around the room. On the other side of the room, Alexis and Matt, if you need someone to pray with you, come find one of them or come find one of our pastors. In a few minutes, I'll close out our time. We'll sing a song before we take communion. But be with Jesus. Do the work you need to do this morning.